I invite you to turn to Genesis, the last verses, as we seek to conclude this sermon series. By God's grace, we have proceeded through it. It feels good, doesn't it, to complete a project, and yet I'm struck by the reality we could begin again at Genesis 1, verse 1, next Sunday, and be richly blessed. For we are never those who master the word, but always those who are praying that the word would master us. Genesis chapter 50, last week we saw Father Jacob died, and as requested, his body was carried to the land of Canaan, and all the Egyptians went up with them, the family of Jacob, and there was a a monumental burial service in the land of Canaan, and now we pick it up after that, so remember how this has all gone, from Abraham to Isaac to Father Jacob, or his name Israel, who had 12 sons. And you remember that 10 of those sons sold Joseph into slavery. But then Joseph was raised up in Egypt to become essentially the prime minister, and he saved the family from starvation. He called them all to come down and move to Egypt, and so they did. And after a number of years, then Father Jacob died. But now the issue of what his brothers did to him resurfaces in their hearts here. Genesis 50, verse 15, God's holy word. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. And they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So far God's word, so far the book of Genesis. Should we bow and ask for the Lord's blessing upon us here?
Father in heaven, we are grateful to take up our place with your church spread over the world right now to sit beneath your word by our posture to acknowledge with all your saints that you are God and we are not, and by your voice we live. We pray you'd feed us, you glorify yourself in the proclamation of the wondrous things you've done. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of your word and for the many opportunities to study it. Pray your word would flourish, not only in our worship services, but in our daily lives and in all the places you give us to study that word, in our Bible studies and Sunday school and catechism classes. We pray, Lord, that your word would be powerful in these places. Bless all those who teach it with understanding and give all of us humble hearts that every time we come to your word, we bow down and listen to you. Grant us that grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, people of God, the last words of Genesis are shocking, quite frankly. In a coffin in Egypt. That's how it ends. In a coffin in Egypt. It's not shocking, of course, if you've read Genesis before. Or if you've read straight through Genesis and seeing lots of people die. It's not shocking if you've lived in the world for more than five minutes and you learn that this is the, the way of humanity. People die and they're buried. But if you were to read the first two chapters of Genesis... God creates a beautiful world, very good. He says as he creates the climax of his creation, mankind made in his image, in the likeness of the living God, to know God and to love God and to serve God. God taking up dust and breathing in his own life. That's the beginning. And now the image bearer at the end is in a coffin in Egypt. It's remarkably sad, actually, isn't it? Remarkably sad words to conclude this book. A book that began with the overflowing love and goodness of God in creating this world and mankind to know him and enjoy his fellowship. And it ends with those words, in a coffin in Egypt. Death is shocking. It's shocking. It strikes me again and again each, each time we, we have a funeral. You don't, you don't get used to death. You shouldn't get used to death. To see the image bearer of God lying in a casket. Shocking. It's so unbecoming. It's so unfitting that the one made by God for God, to whom God gave life, is dead. It's not just physical death, is it? This enemy of death that we never make peace with. We, we can die in peace and we can, we can mourn at funerals in peace because we know the God of peace who's, who's invaded our lives, but but we never make peace with death. Death is an enemy, and, and death is an enemy in all of its forms. Death is an enemy in terms of disease and decay and the brokenness in the body and the deterioration of the mind. And, and death is an enemy in the angry words we spoke this week. Death is an enemy in the lusts we have in our hearts and the greed and the selfishness. This is all the realm of death, and it is unbecoming for the image bearer of God. But death is not the last word. Death is not the whole story. If it was, we wouldn't have the book of Genesis, would we? But the book of Genesis is the unfolding of the plan of of the living God who comes to restore life, and actually life in in a greater fullness than Adam and Eve ever knew it. The Bible is the unfolding of God's great plan. 
that is greater than Satan's schemes and our rebellion. This morning, God, as he concludes this book of Genesis by the pen of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that, that he works for the good of his church in a way that is greater than our evil. That God's goodness and God's work for our good is greater than all the evil of Satan and demons and men and our sinful hearts. Let's look at that this morning. I do have three points. I'll announce them as we go. And the first point is this. We have to see the greatness of our evil. We have to see the greatness of our evil. In verse 15, Joseph's brothers come before Joseph and they are much afraid because their father is dead and now they don't know. Where do we stand with Joseph? And it's understandable. We've seen families where the matriarch or patriarch dies and now the siblings are at each other's throats over the inheritance or whatever. And they know that Joseph loved their father, wanted to honor their father, so now they don't know. if he Was he just being nice to us for, for Father Jacob's sake? And they probably know the story of Esau who had plotted that after Father Isaac died, then he would kill Jacob. And so they wonder. And they send this messenger, this message to, to Joseph, that before your father, before Jacob died, before our father, really, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Whether that's true, that Jacob said that or not, could debate, I guess, but we'd like to believe these brothers are so sanctified now they wouldn't resort to some kind of deception. They seem truly humbled. They, they come and ask for forgiveness. They throw themselves down before Joseph. And Joseph, when they come to confess their sin, he, he doesn't do what sometimes we inadvertently do. and We say, it's okay. Well, it's not okay. They've done great evil to him. That is not okay. They sought to murder their brother to snuff out his life. What, what a family, right? We have a, a family here that God had formed. Before Benjamin was born, there's 11 brothers and Father Jacob. And, and God put them together. And then Father Jacob sinned by his favoritism of Joseph, and that angered these other brothers. And then, and then Joseph told them about the dreams he had, that he would rule over them, they'd bow down to him, and that provoked their anger. And these brothers conspired to destroy Joseph and remove their brother from this world. Now you say, where does such a dysfunctional family come from? But if you, you trace it backwards, and you know that we, we met the dysfunctional family a long, long time ago. When Adam and Eve's son, Cain, murdered his brother, Abel. And how did Cain become so corrupt? Well, from his father, Adam. Joseph's brothers would not yield to God's plan that Joseph would reign, so they resorted to trying to dethrone God's plan. Adam and Eve would not submit to God as God, but they tried to dethrone God, though he had made them and, and love and blessed them in every way they they turned on him in an ugly way. They ate that forbidden fruit. Sin is ugly when we see the backdrop of the good. The word in Hebrew is tov. And God saw that it was tov. It was good. It was good, he says. Then he says it was good. And then when he makes the image bearers, male and female in his image, then he says it's very good. But the good of God was ruined by the sin of man. And we can't understand our lives without, without taking into account the effects of sin. All the vain philosophies that, that, that swirl around us in our culture that say that man is basically good. 
They fail to deal with the reality. Man is so good. Why is he lying in a casket? Death is screaming out that man is not good. I remember seeing a, a video some years ago. I think it was a college professor was dying, terminal cancer. But he gave some noble speech. And so he's being lauded as one dying so courageously and so forth. Nothing about Christ, nothing about sin, nothing about the Redeemer we need. It's just, it's just all mind games. It's all deception. Death is screaming out. The coffin is screaming. Not basically good. We've ruined the goodness. We can say it in our own lives. How many good gifts hasn't God given me that I have ruined? As little children, we do it with that new toy that was purchased, and maybe we're careless and or in anger, destroy it. Do it with relationships. We say crippling words. When will we weep that we have destroyed a good world? When will we weep that we have destroyed a good world? If you've ever been in a car accident, and hopefully no one was hurt, but you look at the damage to the body of that car and you think, I did that. There's the damage. It's not easily fixed. I did that. But somehow we look at this, this world with all of its wars and sexual perversity and out-of-control government spending and broken families, and we exempt ourselves as if we had nothing to do with it. We shake our heads at the foolish ones. And yet this world is our natural family. We all share the guilt of Father Adam and suffer the consequences together. And if we are different from the drug addict, it's only because God's mercy has spared us and transformed us and rescued us. But the story of our parents is the story of a haughty spirit that tried to dethrone God, and that's our story. We brought the curse upon ourselves and the miseries of this world. I was, I was reading somewhere this past week, became acquainted with this trial that's going on of the man who's accused of murdering his, his wife and son. Shot him. And I read that the prosecution was going to try to argue that the motive for the killing was, was that he had committed financial crimes and these were about to be exposed and so he wanted to forestall that or, or, or distract or gain sympathy for himself. And I thought to myself as I read that, I thought, are you kidding me? Is that, a, is that a plausible motive? Would any judge or jury buy that, that a man kills his wife and son because he doesn't want his financial matters disclosed? And then it struck me, this prosecution isn't just making stuff up out of thin air. They, they know you need a plausible motive. Why do they think this is a plausible motive? Well, because people do this all the time, don't they? They kill for a pair of shoes. They kill for a cell phone. They kill out of pride. This is who we are. Yes, it's a plausible motive. People have killed for smaller reasons, like someone bringing a better offering to church than they did. Note Cain. And murder is not the only sin we've seen throughout the book of Genesis. Nor depraved people. Every kind of sin we've seen through Genesis. Shameful sins that make us blush. 
Noah's drunkenness, and Judah's visit of the prostitute, and Abraham selling out his wife, and on and on it goes. Remember all the way back in Genesis 6, verse 6? That the Lord made that remarkable statement. Genesis 6, 5 and 6. Then the, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. That's what leads to the great flood. The statement. Our evil is great. None of us are exempt. None of us can claim no responsibility. The story is told of the Times of London, 100 or so years ago, asking the question to some prominent authors, what's, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton began his essay, Dear Sir. And then, well, what, what would you say? What's wrong with the world? We know what Adam would have said, the woman you gave me. We know what Eve would have said, the serpent. We know what Cain would have said, my holier-than-thou brother. We know what Joseph's brothers would have said. Our father's favoritism and our smug younger brother and his dreaming. G.K. Chesterton wrote, Dear Sir, I guess we didn't answer what we would say. What would we say? I actually know what we'd say because I've heard it said and I've said it myself. What's wrong with the world? The government. The government, the education system, the movie makers, the lazy people that don't want to work today. What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton replied, Dear sirs, I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. I am. Only as we own Genesis, as our family story, will we be humbled enough to confess that I am what's wrong with the world. My sin, my rebellion, the curse I brought into this world. Romans 3, there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good, no, not one. (laughs) God makes a world good, and there is no one who does good. That's what we are in ourselves. We ruined everything. But when we see that, then behold the wonder that against the greatness of our evil comes, secondly, the greater greatness of God's good. Notice that with me. The greater greatness of God's good. Verse 19 
But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Joseph tells his brothers, first of all, what Adam and Eve should have said to Satan, we are not in the place of God. And then Joseph makes one of the most memorable statements in all of Scripture, cherished by all those believers who love the doctrine of providence. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. I want you to notice three things about that statement. First of all, it proclaims that God has a plan for his people. The brothers of Joseph had a plan, didn't they? As Joseph approaches them, sent by Father Jacob to check on them and their shepherding work, they conspire. Let's get rid of this dreamer. They throw him into a pit. And then Judah says, well, let's not kill him. Let's sell him off to the Ishmaelite traders. And they didn't sell him into slavery because they were trying to help their brother find a job in Egypt or wanted him in, to enjoy a vacation down south. But they wanted to rid their lives of his very existence. But Joseph is proclaiming, you had a plan, but God had a plan. He had a greater plan. Your plan was thoughts of evil. His plan was thoughts of good. And in the midst of all of our failures, there's no one who does good. No, not one. God had determined to do good to us sinners. This whole plan wasn't Joseph's plan. It wasn't Joseph, such an upright man. He's traveling down to Egypt in chains. He thought, you know, I think maybe I'll try to become something big in Egypt and save my brothers. It wasn't Joseph's plan. It was God's plan. He didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. And yet God, he declares he has these plans for us that we are completely unworthy of. You know, those, those words of Jeremiah 29, God's, God's got his people in captivity. They're, they're facing judgment for their sins. And then God says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. I have a plan for you. It's a glorious thing. And we not only insult God when we think he has no plan, but we insult God when we, we don't believe it's a plan of love. At the end of verse 17, when these words come from Joseph's brothers, Joseph weeps, and the text doesn't tell us why Joseph wept. Why do you think Joseph wept? I kind of wonder if it wasn't because Joseph is greatly hurt that after 17 years of mercies to his brothers, been in Egypt for 17 years when Father Jacob dies, They still mistrust their brother. They're not sure if there's actually any good intention towards them in all the care they've received that has saved their lives. And aren't we like that towards God? Wondering if behind the smiling face there's not yet something that wants to get me back. Do you trust Jesus this morning? Not simply do you love him or do you believe on him. Do you trust the Lord Jesus? Some fathers have told me in years past that they would had to talk to a young man dating their daughter and ask the question, you know, what are your intentions with regard to my daughter? 
for whatever reason, been dating a long time or something. What are your intentions? Do you, do you have to ask that of God? Do you have to ask that of the Lord Jesus? Would our fears bring the Lord to tears? God has a plan. It's good. He loves his church. But notice, secondly, about the statement of Joseph that that Joseph's statement proclaims not just that God has a plan, but that God has sovereign power to bring it to pass. Joseph's brothers, with the working out of their plan, were quite strong, weren't they? Ten brothers, ten older brothers, grabbing him, throwing him into a pit, dragging him out, taking away the, the coat of many colors, selling him to the Ishmaelites. And we read later in Genesis that, that, that Joseph was pleading with them while they were selling him off to the Ishmaelites. You can just imagine Joseph being carried away by the Ishmaelites, just crying out to his brothers in helplessness and desperation. He is at their mercy. They are all powerful in his life. But Joseph's brothers were not so strong. God was stronger. God was stronger. It wasn't their purpose that triumphed, but God's purpose. They purposed to expel Joseph from their lives forever. And no, Joseph is now in their life more than ever. They purposed to get rid of the dreamer. God purposed to fulfill the dreams. They purposed to make Joseph bow at their feet. God purposed to have them bow at Joseph's feet. That's what's happened. God's purpose. God's amazing power to fulfill his purpose. Who's that comforting for? Who is that comforting for? It strikes me that, that Joseph's words to his brothers here are, are not simply words to comfort Joseph's heart. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. But if these brothers are repentant, then these words are of tremendous comfort for Joseph's brothers. To know that though we are so wicked and evil, at the end of the day, we were not in control. God was. doesn't excuse our guilt in any way. But praise the Lord, we didn't get our way. God stopped us. Thinking that's a comfort for parents. Many parents are guilt-ridden, right? Looking back and Maybe you're like that, wishing you had done something different for your children. Do you think those thoughts and you rehearse those thoughts? But isn't it good to know that you weren't in control? That there's someone greater than you in the lives of your children? Overruling even your mistakes, your failures or your dereliction of duty even, that there is someone greater than man. And so what do we do as parents if we have regrets for wrongs we did? We repent and confess it to God. Sometimes it's appropriate, isn't it, to confess it to the children, ask for their forgiveness. And then we rest in the knowledge that God is greater And if my child is not walking with the Lord, I know God is greater than my sin and greater than my child's sin, so then I keep praying. To the God who has the power to work out his plan. And aren't we each comforted, whether a parent or not, 
to know that in all the things that we mess up, there is someone who restrains, there is someone who intervenes, and there is someone who has his hands over our lives. God's good made in the garden is not a good that could be overcome. Sometimes we talk so much about the power of sin that I think we begin it sometimes to think that we are equally powerful. God's powerful, but me and my sin, I'm powerful. Well, actually not. Evil doesn't have some inherent power. And we don't believe in this dualistic universe where there's the power of good and there's the power of evil and these things are equally ultimate. No. There's one eternal being and he is good. The overflowing fountain of all good. And there's a mystery how evil comes into a good creation that God has not revealed to us. But we know this, that we puny creatures and our evil are not the equivalent of God's power. Sin has destructive power because God has cursed it. Because God has visited this world with the curse of death. And that too is God's power. God has subjected creation to futility. But God is greater than all. And Joseph, standing before his brothers, is the living proof that it was not you, my brothers, who were so strong, but God was. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good, and God won. But thirdly, notice one more thing about Joseph's statement. Not just God's plan, not just God's power, but we could call it God's puzzle. You know, when you, some of you do puzzles. I actually don't know that I've ever done a large puzzle in my life, but but I see some in my own family who love puzzles. And, you know, you dump out the box of pieces, maybe a thousand pieces, and, and you have no idea how these pieces will be transformed into the, the picture on the box. But you are assured by the image on the box that these pieces can become that picture. And so you have that confidence. And so that's the fun of it, I imagine. Progressively over time, it develops. Joseph would not say that his life was a fun puzzle, but his future had been a puzzle, an enigma, uh, something unknown. He dreamed dreams, and now as he's being carried to, to Egypt, it seems that these dreams cannot possibly come true. As he's in prison in Egypt, remind in looking at the life of Joseph that human perception is remarkably limited and fallible. We see and we think, but we do not see as God sees, and we do not think as God thinks. We do not know as God knows. God had kept so much hidden, hadn't he, from from Joseph's brothers and from Joseph. And now at this moment, they've, they've begun to see the good. You meant it for evil and God meant it for good. And God has unveiled to them some of the good. Joseph says it was one thing that God wanted to, to save many lives from starvation. And so he has. Egyptians were saved, many other people from other nations were saved, and above all, the family of Jacob, the Old Testament church, was saved, which meant that the church would not become extinct, which meant that the line would continue to the birth of Jesus, the great Savior of the world. But there were other goods as well, weren't there? There there was the good of sanctification. Father Jacob in all of this, thinking Joseph is dead and so forth, has been severely tried. He's gone through the furnace. And God has burned away so much ugliness. And then what of Joseph's brothers? They, when they meet Joseph, you know, they, they don't recognize him as, as this, uh, their brother, the prime minister in Egypt. And they are carrying on their backs loads of guilt. What a profound mercy of God. 
to sift them. Through the trials Joseph gives them. And to bring them to brokenness. And to deliver them from that guilt. And then there's the mercy of restored family unity. All these brothers had buried their father together. They've come back to Egypt together. Joseph is telling them not to be afraid. He will provide for them. And then what about the great good that we can see this morning of God giving to us this text, this beloved text of Scripture, a clear and unmistakable display of God's providence that we may be comforted and we may know that you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And may write those words over our lives. And we may confess it even when we can't see it, when, when life is a puzzle. And we can, we can sing then with, with William Cooper those amazing words, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Written by a man who struggled with depression. God will make it plain. Nowhere has he made it plainer. His good intention for his people than at the cross of Jesus where the greatest evil ever perpetrated in the world, the murder of the Lord of glory. The Son of God in human flesh goes down to the deepest pit, pit of hell. Nevertheless, brings about in God's glorious plan and power the greatest good in all of the world, the salvation of sinners. God had a plan, puzzling plan, tear-streaked cheeks of disciples who think the Messiah has been defeated three days in the grave, but then up from the dead to proclaim God's plan, victorious. Greater than our evil is the greater greatness of God's good to repair a world made good, a world infected by our evil, but visited by a God who overcomes it all. What does he overcome? He overcomes sin and its power to bind our hearts. He overcomes guilt that separates us from God. He he overcomes Satan who plots our destruction. He overcomes death. Joseph's words are all the sweeter now. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. God works in all things for good, for those who love him are called according to his purpose. And so God's good of Genesis 1 is not overcome ultimately because God, when he made the world good, had destined it for an eternal good and he will have his way with a new creation. 
And that brings us finally to the third point. Not just the greatness of our evil, and secondly, the greater greatness of God's good, but thirdly, the greatest goodness that is sure to come. The greatest goodness that is sure to come. When you come to the end of Genesis, you don't come to the greatest goodness because Genesis is the book of beginnings. And there's a long way to go. 400 years of slavery in Egypt are coming. But though the greatest goodness is a long way off, it is possible to rest in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord. And there's something very encouraging about these, these last verses of, of this book. Joseph sees Ephraim's children, the third generation, the children of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And now we've moved from the young Joseph, the teenager, being sold into slavery, to Joseph, the grandpa. And guess what? He's not an embittered old man. He's able to forgive his brothers because he trusted the God of providence. His brothers had done nothing to him that God had not foreordained and overcome. Joseph's father, Jacob, was headed down the road to become an embittered old man when he thought Joseph was dead. But God intervened for him and also for Joseph. And it's a wonderful thing that that saints who learn to trust their father learn to live a life of peace and contentment. And so there's a way to live in a broken, sin-cursed world and still to enjoy the blessings of God, to enjoy the family God may give, even as we realize so many brokennesses and sorrows that leave us unsatisfied in the present, as we wait for the day when God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And so God gives us this glimpse of Joseph living in peace here, doesn't he? Joseph had said to his brothers, am I in the place of God? I refuse to take that place. And that's actually the secret, isn't it, to Joseph's peace. I will not assume God's place. I will rest in the care of God who had a good plan. And now he's seen here holding his grandsons. You know, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's my heart joy to see in our congregation so many grandparents who've learned to live in peace and contentment despite the fact that things are not altogether perfect. We could go around the room today, I'm sure, and make each other weep. But it's an amazing thing that God gives to our hearts the grace to enjoy the blessings he gives, to trust that his hand reigns, and to look for the greatest goodness to come. Joseph says, you mark my casket for the land of Canaan. Been to the airport, you know they tag your bags for your final destination. Always gives me comfort. Final destination. But you don't ever see those bags again. This actually is more like somebody giving you something to take with you on your journey. 
Here, you give this to, to Uncle Joe when you get there. So it, Uncle Joe's written on the box, and it sits there till Thursday when you're leaving. And it tells you, I'm leaving, I'm going somewhere. So Joseph says, you don't have to go take my bodies and have a funeral in Canaan right now like we did for, for our father. Jacob, you just, you just tag my casket for the final destination. And it sits there in front of your eyes and it reminds you for the next 400 years that this church is headed somewhere. It's fun to go to a cemetery sometimes. If it's not one where you have loved ones, I suppose. And to read the old markings on old gravestones. And there are some that say foolish things. And suggest that there is no hope in the ones who buried this one. No hope beyond this life. And then there are other tombstones. That quote wonderful verses of scripture pieces of 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection. We all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And there you see a coffin that's marked for the final destination. For the return of the Lord Jesus. So what's the application? Number one, humble yourself before the greatness of your evil. We need not blame others. We, by our nature, are evil. And we ruin the good. Number two, give God glory. Acknowledge that we are not in the place of God, but God is God, and therefore no one will overcome God's good plan for us. Not Satan, not my enemy, not a loved one who's estranged from me. God reigns. And number three, wait in hope. And as you enjoy your grandchildren or great-grandchildren on your knee, you remind them. God, as Joseph said, God will surely visit you. Jesus Christ is coming. Don't build your home here below, but you live the pilgrim life. Do you come to the land where God will wipe every tear from our eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow? crying. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Revelation shows us the final destination. Amen. Our Father in heaven, what a glorious God you are. What incomprehensible grace that you would come to the world a second time after we had ruined all you had made good, that you would come with the promise of a gospel, your own beloved Son, to crush the serpent's head, to set us free, and to bring us to the new heavens and earth. Oh God, we praise you. We thank you for your great mercy towards us. We thank you for the book of Genesis, the unfolding of the beginnings of the outworking of your glorious plan. O oh Lord, you've been counseled by no one, for no one could conceive the things that you would do. How thankful we are that you did not leave us to ourselves. We pray, Lord, that our hearts and our coffins would be marked for heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.